Uh, we find ourselves in the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. So if you have a copy of God's Word, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, then uh, borrow one or look on with somebody beside you there. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. Our topic this morning, I've entitled Authentic Authority and Power. Authentic Authority and Power. Mark 1, 21 to 28. Let's read the text so that we can familiarize ourselves with the text. And then we'll get busy this morning and get to work with the text. Mark writes, on behalf of Peter, as you know, they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, in the synagogue, there was a man there with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying. Be quiet. And come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions. The unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice. And then came out of him. They were all amazed. So that debating among themselves saying. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding districts of Galilee. Our title for our entire series is Following Jesus Immediately. Twice in this pericope, you notice the word immediately. That's because Mark's writing a fast-paced record and biography about who Jesus is. This is why we've selected the book of Mark, because it moves at such a breakneck pace and fits nicely into our cultures. We're all moving at a breakneck pace. Hopefully, we'll intersect with the gospel of Mark here uh, before us. In particular, you also notice this word, authority. This is why we have entitled this section, Authentic Authority and Power. We need to discern what authentic authority and authentic power looks like, especially when you're living in a culture and in a time where we don't like authority. We want to throw off authority. We want to resist authority. But what does authentic authority and power look like? Mark 1, 21 through 28 will give us a clear picture and a definition as we seek to church plant and to replant, we need to understand this issue of authority and power. The Greek philosopher Aristotle lived from 384 to 322 BC. He came up with classic rhetoric elements. The three elements that fit into classic rhetoric, as a matter of fact, even in one of the commentaries I looked at this week, the introduction mentioned his three classic elements. So this is B.C., before Christ. He writes about these three necessary elements. In other words, if you're going to be persuasive as a teacher, if you're going to be persuasive with your speech and, and, and with your rhetoric, it has to include these three elements. Here are Aristotle's three elements. First, he said, you have to have logos or content, the word logos. You have to have meaning, right? Purpose, content. Second, he said, you have to have ethos. Ethos is the necessary commensurate example and character as a speaker to be able to get up and speak in a persuasive way. You have to have the commensurate character that would follow your rhetoric and third, he says, there's pathos, pathos or emotion or passion. So 
if you're going to be persuasive as a teacher and persuasive as a leader, and you're going to create good argumentation, right? You're going to need logos, ethos, and pathos. In this text before us this morning, you see that Jesus had authority. He spoke with authority. The reason why is he had logos. He had content. That is the truth, right? He had character and example. He was the very son of God. He never sinned. He knew of sin, but he never sinned in his 33 years on this planet. And here you see the intensity in the moment when he goes into the synagogue to preach and to teach. You see the emotion and the passion, right? So Jesus gets up and he speaks with clarity of content and message, the gospel. He's authentic. He has a, a force of character that backs it up. And he has well-placed intensity in dealing with the people and convincing them. We saw last week that Jesus came to be a teacher. He came to be an expositor. We use expositor as shorthand. We saw that last week in verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Preaching is not my idea. Standing up here with, with persuasive rhetoric is not my idea. We follow the example of Jesus. That's why we gather together and we teach and we sit under the, the word of God and we, we explicate his words and his teaching. Now, John was a fantastic teacher. He drew great crowds. You see that in, in Mark chapter 1. But John didn't hold a candle to Jesus. Because why? In classic rhetoric, he, he was the best. He was over the top. He had logos, ethos, and pathos. And he demonstrated what we see in this passage as authentic authority and power. So much so that when the people heard him, as you see twice in this text, they were awestruck. Or a more modern way of saying it, they were thunderstruck. They had their minds blown. So if Jesus were to walk into Nelson County High School and walk up here and make his way to the pulpit, certainly I would quickly step aside and he would speak. We would be awestruck at what he was saying. Why? Because he's not repeating words about him. It was the word, Jesus, John 1, speaking the word. It was the perfect package. It, it, it went way over the top of Aristotle's rhetoric because it was the very son of God that walked into this synagogue on this particular day. This was the first time that Jesus, the very son of God, went into a synagogue and began teaching and speaking the very words of God about himself. So he's not saying, thus saith the Lord. He is saying about himself. Whatever he says is actually truth, which makes him a fantastic preacher and leader. Now, when this text opens, it give us, gives us a, a geographical marker, Capernaum. Look at verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Just a little bit of a reminder, because remember, Mark's moving really fast. He's got his foot on the gas pedal. So Luke 4 states that Jesus had just been rejected by his hometown of Nazareth. He leaves Nazareth in Luke 4, and he makes his way to Capernaum. So between 20 and 21, there has been some time elapsed, and he's making his way down to Capernaum to kind of launch his public teaching ministry. He's launched his ministry. Now he's moving into that role of teacher, of expositor, right, and preacher. We learned last time that the content, because there's no content in 21 to 28, just says he's teaching. It doesn't say what he's teaching. We know what his content is because we looked at it last time. We saw that, that paradigm, right? Repent, believe, follow, fish. He was repeating that in all of its flavor in the, in the form of story, but he kept telling them, just like we looked last time at verses 14 to 20, repent of your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Follow him and then get busy fishing or sharing the gospel message, the gospel of God with others. 
And then there's a little bit of time. He's run out of Nazareth, and he ends up in Capernaum. Capernaum's very important in Galilee, the region of Galilee. Capernaum's an important uh, city, so we should take note of it. It's on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a lake, but in the scriptures they call it a sea. It's so large, and it had the appearance of a sea, so they call it the Sea of Galilee. So it's on the northwest side of the lake. One half of Jesus' miracles happen in this particular region. It's about two miles from the, the Jordan River, which flows into the Sea of Galilee. It was a Roman colon, colony um, with a garrison of soldiers, but it had a robust Jewish population. It was a cool town. To me, when I read about Capernaum, I'm thinking Austin. You know, on Lake Austin there. If you've been, how many people have been to Austin before? If you haven't been to Austin, it's kind of a cool town. Yeah, cool people go. Thank you, funky. Cool people go to a cool town, right? So there's funky and I know I'm just kidding. So, you know, it, it was kind of like the coolest town in the region. So it had merchants. It had artisans. It had skilled fishermen. And then it had to have had scribes. Why? Because he says he went to a synagogue. There were requirements. You just couldn't start a synagogue. It's not like you can go to Nelson County Public School and say, hey, we're going we're gonna to put a church in. I mean, there's a process here. You just don't show up and, and, and do what we're kind of doing. Neither did they, right? And so there was a synagogue there. That means you had to have a quorum. You had to have a quorum of 10 Jewish men over the age of 30 to have a synagogue. So there was a significant population of Jewish families there. Here's what's really cool. That in Capernaum today, there are the remains of a second century, um, uh, uh, what am I saying? Come on, synagogue. Second century synagogue. So there are the remains of that, which we presume were built upon the first century synagogue, probably the one Jesus walked into. So Jesus probably walked into the very synagogue that you can go lay eyes on. It's a second century one, but most likely would have built it upon the other one. So that's pretty fascinating stuff. And synagogue means a place to gather together. And so on the Sabbath, they would gather together and the rabbis would read and then they would comment and make commentary on what they actually read. All right? So it would have been common though this is not strange in verse 21 for Jesus to make his way to the synagogue on a Sabbath. It would be common. As a matter of fact, it was kind of a lay-run organization. So anytime they had a guest speaker traveling through their region, they would acquire them and ask them to speak. So having Jesus stand up and teach would not have been a surprise. But who stood up and teach to teach was the Son of God. That would have been a surprise. So in essence, it was an ordinary day on the Sabbath where they gathered together in the synagogue to hear scripture read, Old Testament scripture read, and then commentary be made upon that scripture. What makes this day supernatural, what makes this day special is God walked into the synagogue. Jesus, the Son of God, and we know, right, the Holy One of God, verse 24, the devil, the demons even recognized who he was. He shows up, and he shows up big, Set aside Aristotle's rhetoric. You have the very son of God speaking to them. And he turned the place upside down. From this text, from this text before us this morning, there are really two practices that inform our church planting. There are two practices that inform our replanting. There's some things we need to know by Jesus' authority and by his power, his power, how it informs us as we seek to make an impact in Bardstown and we seek to make an impact in replanting. The two are these up front. Number one, we must learn to speak with authority. And number two, we must regularly push back darkness. We must learn to speak with authority and we must constantly be engaged in pu pushing back darkness. First, practice I want to call your attention to is there in verses 21 and 22. We've already read them, and, is, and that means we need to speak with authority. Now, Jesus shows up in Capernaum on the Sabbath. He's got four of his disciples in tow, right? 
we learned that they all followed him there. And so four of them are with him. They go to the Sabbath and they begin to teach. What are they teaching? Text doesn't say, but we can assume some things. They're saying, repent, believe, follow fish. That's basically what is going on there. And after he begins teaching, the text says, verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. What do you mean not as the scribes? You see, the scribes were, they're kind of a motley crew. I mean, they were the authority um, on, on scripture, but they were extremely boring. Um, they would just read kind of real quiet, somber. They would add regs, so they were like blunt force instruments. They would, they would just read stuff, and then they would bind men's consciences. They'd say, here, here, folks, uh, this morning at Bardstown, welcome to Crossing Bardstown. Here are 370 rules you need to obey this week. And you're like, oh, jeez, I can barely get up to read my Bible, and you're going to give me another you know, 369, are you serious? And they would read these regs and they would add to them and they would just constantly build in a monotone, kind of rabbinical, uh, Sabbatarian way and just kind of bind you. They would just kind of put weight on you. So you wouldn't leave here with grace. You would leave with a lot of law. So if you think I'm weird, you would meet these cats and you'd go, man, you know, Dan's a whole lot better. I mean, these guys just wear you out, all right? They wear you out. That was their goal. So when they say they were amazed, they were amazed because he deployed all of the rhetoric. He had logos and he had ethos and he had pathos and he was moving out and everything he was saying was as if he was writing scripture. It was as if scripture was right in front of him and it was. God walked in. Jesus, the son of God, walked into the synagogue. And so they were thunderstruck. Sheer amazement. Almost to the point of panic, let me say it more modernly, they were blown away, right? Their, their minds were boggled. It produced like almost dread and, and fear. Why? Because Jesus was in a league all of his own. They had never met somebody like that. They had never met somebody that taught like this. They were astonished. I can't find the necessary words to describe how radical for him to stand up in the synagogue uh, to articulate how radical that was to them, but they had their minds blown. Why? Because he was speaking with authority. They were just repeating old principles. He was like cutting right through all of that, and it was like he was talking to you. It was like he's talking to your heart. He was like speaking into your life, and so they had this moment where they were both surprised at the teaching and terrified, and together if you took surprised and terrified, you get this word amazed, which is a pretty vanilla word in the English language, but it is severe. It is a big deal. They are shocked. There is shock and awe to his type of teaching. He preached God's word, not about God's word. Like this morning, I'm preaching about God's word and, and bringing it to life and color. He preached God's word. Whatever he said was God's word. He was the word. And so it was crazy. And he spoke with one who had authority. It means with substance. He spoke like an Old Testament prophet. He could say, thus says the Lord, it was him. He had a holy mouth, right? So when I'm teaching, I'm an imperfect man articulating a perfect gospel. But sometimes uh, logos is weak or sometimes pathos is weak or sometimes... My ethos is weak, all depending. You go, ah. And so you take that into consideration. Not when the Son of God walks in and teaches. It's full-throated, full authority. He brings everything forward. And so these people are like, wow, this is shocking. They've never experienced such a thing. This is not what they're used to. The scribes were theological pronouncements and boring and dry and binding men's conscience. This was the living incarnate word, right? The scribes would bring bondage by quotation. Jesus said, what I'm sharing with you is rooted and grounded in himself. He is the wisdom of God. And so if you want to capture how they felt, they were spiritually dazzled. They had never seen such a thing. 
This is the first time ever that Jesus showed up in a synagogue. This is the first time ever he, he taught like this. And it knocked them off their feet. They were stunned, right? He did this a lot. You see it in the Sermon on the Mount where it says, You have heard that it was said, but I say. So when Jesus is speaking, it is the very word of God. And it certainly was a strange day for them. Jesus was and is the chief expositor. Now, as an expositor, I'm just an expositor. He's the chief expositor. So his was clear and original and, and simple and life-altering and direct and, and, and anointed. Whereby, when I prepare and teach you like we do every Sunday morning, I've got to read the scriptures all week. I've got to interpret the scriptures. I've got to explain the scriptures. I've got to apply the scriptures. There's a lot of labor. He didn't do it with any labor. He had no notes because what he spoke was the word of God. Right? You're seeing the difference between just an expositor and the chief expositor. He had a golden tongue to him. And when he spoke, he blew their minds. But here's the deal. Here's what you need to remember. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed for us today. There is the same expectation that we stand up and we teach with authority. We teach with force. The ideal is always to have content logos, to have the commensurate amount of character to back up what you're saying, ethos, and to deliver it with intensity and passion. That is always the case. That is the most persuasive preaching. And preaching is foundational to church planting and to replanting. It's foundation to, foundational to what we do. And we're called, all of us, not just me, we're all called to speak with authority. Our authority is a derived authority. It's based on the word of God. It's what we're called to do in our churches. It's what we're called to do in our communities. It's what we're called to do in our homes. When your kids are out of line, you speak with authority based on the word of God. You speak into their lives. Nothing has changed. Jesus walked in. He blew away all the rabbis. He spoke with authority. They were thunderstruck. We're called to do the same thing. When the word of God is preached, it ought to have a thunderstruck-like moment in our hearts. Nothing has changed. We're called to clearly articulate the gospel, a message that is tethered in the scriptures. That is why it is so important as we plant and replant that we tether ourselves to the text, that we tether ourselves to the scriptures because it's authoritative. I'm not authoritative. I'm deficient. I'm flawed. Although I need to bring all of the ethos I can bring to the table, I'm still imperfect. And that's why we preach a perfect message. And we can do so with authority. We can stand up and tell our neighbor, you need to repent, believe, follow, and fish. Thus says the Lord because it's in the scriptures. It's the very gospel we preach, right? And it's still sufficient. And it's still authoritative. 2 Timothy 3.16. We are ambassadors of Christ. Speaking on behalf of Christ, we can say, thus says the Lord. We're to proclaim Christ today just like it was done there with authority. And that's how we're going to reach our community. When we in this room collectively agree to the message, the gospel, and we start talking to people and telling them, thus says the Lord, you need to repent, believe, follow, and fish. We're not authoritative. You should run from authoritative leaders. Our message has the authority, not the messenger. There is a vast distinction. But we preach Christ with courage, with humility. We unleash the word with confidence under the Holy Spirit's leadership. We pray that the Spirit would grip hearts and change lives of men and, and women. And what I love about this word in verse 22, they were amazed. That's what church should be like, folks. We're trying to put within you a hunger and thirst for amazement, for awe. And we need to recover awe, A-W-E. We need to recover awe because awe is found in the scriptures, right? 
Jesus walked in, then he created all because he was the very son of God. We are 2,000 years post that. We are to replicate that every Sunday when we explicate the scriptures. We are to create awe, right? We are hardwired for awe. We should be enamored with the scriptures. We should be enamored with the beauty of the Lord. It is a part of our stewardship every Sunday when we gather to use the ordinary means of grace, the teaching of God's word, and create awe in your lives and awe in people that are guests with us, right? You see, John Piper says, here's the problem. Our souls are way too satisfied with small things, right? And when you're satisfied with small things, he says there's no room for great things. You see, scriptural awe, when you get enamored with the scriptures and you, you fall head over heels in love with the scripture, what this awe creates is vertical awe of God because this is how you know God. You know God from the scriptures. That's why we teach the scriptures. The scriptures point you to God and then vertically you'll be enthralled and at awe with God. You see, the word of God here, the, the Bible is not a collection of cool sayings and wisdom sayings. I think we use it sometimes like that. It's not your daily bread, not a little devo in the morning. This is the very mind of God, right? It's eternal truth. It should create wonder. Every time you come to church, you should have your mind blown away by the authority and sufficiency of the scriptures. And that's why we do what we do. And that's, as a church plant, that's why we focus on what we focus on, the scriptures. Because this book is living and active and able to cut to the quick of the heart. This book transforms lives. We don't transform lives. I can't transform your life. I wish I had the gift of saving people because it would be fantastic. I don't have it. You don't have it. It doesn't exist. We have the sufficient scriptures and we speak them with authority. And I can stand here and tell you with authority, under God's authority, that you are to repent, believe, follow, and fish. If you're a guest with us, that is what we are asking you to do. And I can week in and week out say the same thing. I can say here, look, you're to preach the gospel as an ambassador, and you're to do so, and you're to speak with authority. I think we need to recover awe. And it's not in, it's not in, in, in shenanigans. It's not in smoke. We could fill this whole room with smoke and I could come running down the stadium to some old song. And, but listen to me. What you do to reach people in Bardstown, you got to do to keep them. So if you want to turn this into a show, then you got to keep the show going, right? But if we use the ordinary means of grace, we teach the Word of God and we teach it faithfully. The awe ought to be, the wonder ought to be, we sing Scripture and then we teach Scripture. And in the power of in the authority of Jesus Christ, we call people to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. But not only we do that on Sunday mornings, you do that in, on Monday and Tuesday in your neighborhood. And at work, you, you call people to repent and believe and to follow and then to fish. And you, you just keep doing that over and over again. That's what defines us. This is why it's a practice of a church plan. But I'm telling you, we need awe. A lot of times, you know, when I go preach on the road, you know, I'll, I'll immediately say, hey, take your Bible and join me in Mark chapter 5. And I watch people just go out. It's the most amazing. I say, grab your Bible. They just, it's like their time of the service. I'm just going to chill. No, as you see in Mark chapter 1, 21 to 22, when someone gets up and teaches the very word of God, it ought to cause us to sit at the front of our seat. It ought, to, it ought to cause us to, to, to just be astonished at the mind of God being articulated through human personality up here. But it's the very word of God we're articulating. That's why I teach you the word of God. It's not my homily or my rhetoric or what I come up with. I want to teach you what the scriptures teach. This isn't just for the elders and this isn't, isn't just for me. It's for you too. You are to speak as a member of this church. You are to speak with the authority of Christ into the community. You are to be salt and you are to be light, right? Into the community. We speak with the authority and power of the Holy Spirit. We're not handling snakes up here. 
Uh, we're, we're not, we don't have a shaman. We, we don't have gimmicks. We're not doing any of that. Why? Because we want the awe to be rightly placed. It's on the scriptures and on who Jesus is. And when you see the scriptures, you'll see Jesus and you'll go, boom, mind blown. That the God of the universe left heaven, left the, the, the glories of heaven in all his beauty and array and entered the slums of this earth to die for your sin. That ought to blow your mind every Sunday. That's called the Lord's Supper. That's why we do that in the service as well. And I'm telling you, Satan freaks on this. When we start as a group speaking with authority, there'll be a reaction. Look at that, verse 23. Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. That's intentional, right? He cries out. He will work overtime to silence our witness, to remove our boldness, to take away our courage, to, 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 to rid us of being in awe of who Jesus Christ is. But I'm telling you, you need to be in sheer amazement every single Sunday as you study God's Word. I need to be faithful to bring to your attention the sheer amazement of God's Word. But you need to be in sheer amazement. We need to recover awe in our collective worship, right? And then when we leave here, we speak with authority because we know the Word of God. Second practice of a healthy church plan is to push back darkness. So we are to speak with authority, verse 21 and 22. Now we are to push back darkness, 23 to 28. Jesus models word and deed, right? He speaks the word. Not only is he an expositor, but he's an exorcist in the text. Not only is he an expositor, a faithful teacher, and he spoke with authority, but he's an exorcist. He pushed back uh, the assault of the malevolent shrieking darkness that was in that synagogue and that guy had been in the synagogue for quite a while he had embedded himself into the synagogue nobody knew he was demon possessed he was just there he was just part of the the dry dull drudgery of duty right never delight in a synagogue never delight all duty 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 and he just was found a, a comforting home uh, in the synagogue there as you know, light attracts bugs, right? You see that when you turn on your light outside at night. You turn a light on, all the bugs come. It works in the church as well. It works in a synagogue as well. It works around the truth. You turn on the bright light in Bardstown, and you're going to get some bugs. We can expect some opposition. We can expect some thwarting, some malevolency uh, that, that comes with the territory of, of planting a health, healthy church. So the text in verse 23, I think, turns dramatically. It's like a hard right, you know? It's like you just like, oh, came up to a stop sign and you were rolled it and you hard right. It just has this dramatic turn and literally, quote, all hell breaks loose in the text. And Mark provides an illustration of how Jesus pushes back the darkness and illustrates what kind of authority that Jesus has. This is... Before you, the first miracle in Mark's gospel. Because of Christ's presence in Galilee and in Capernaum, demonic activity kicked up. There was an unusual amount of demonic activity because you had the Son of God on, planet, on the planet, right? So this is an unusual, concentrated effort to minimize and demise the Son of God. He's been tempted. He's been taken off into the wilderness and, and severely tempted. I mean, you can tell they know that the Son of God has come to save sinners. And they're going to do everything they can in their power to thwart that. And the text says there was a demon-possessed man. It says he has an unclean spirit. This isn't a guy with Tourette's. Um, just being a little weird. Um, this is full-on demonic possession, right? They literally had pirated his soul. They spoke through him. They used human voice to speak, right? And the demon was in complete control, even his voice, of this man. What's fascinating about the text when you just read it is that the first person to really recognize him there are demons in the synagogue. The, the people don't say, oh, there's the son of God. The first people in the synagogue, this particular synagogue, that recognize who he is are demons. They're the first one to recognize his identity 
and understand his authority. And so Jesus is teaching this foul, dark, malevolent, impure, troubled demon. And the guy can't take it anymore. Look what it says. He screams out. He's just teaching, flat-footed. Got his sandals on, his robe, waxing eloquent, using all his rhetoric. Bang! And it just goes so deep and so penetrating. It's so amazing that the demon just shrieks out, which would cause everybody, if some guy stood up in the middle of our worship this morning and shrieked out and his head spun around, you know, you'd go, oh, poltergeist, great, here in Bardstown. I mean, we'd immediately know this is malevolent. It's not right. It's, it's supernatural, right? It's metaphysical. And he cries out, why? Because he can't take the truth. He wants Jesus to go away. How many Sabbaths have this guy been embedded in this synagogue? I have no idea. But he was there. And then the demon speaks. Look at it. Saying, verse 24, what business do we, plural, not singular demon, we, look at the plural pronoun, we, right? What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Now that's a little backhand. He'd just been kicked out of Nazareth. He wasn't received from his hometown. That was to remind him of his humanity. That demon says, we'll take a run at him. Let's remind him of how hated he was in Nazareth and his humanity. Let's see if we can throw him off his game. So the first phrase comes out, oh, Jesus of Nazareth. And then secondarily, you see the pushing back of darkness. Have you come to destroy us? Answers, yes. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3, 15, the Evangelion, right? The serpent's head will be crushed. Oh, you're doggone right. Come to destroy us. I know who you are. None of the people in the Sabbath is, uh, in the synagogue are saying, the scribes aren't stepping up saying, hey, we know who this guy is. We've been praying for him for, oh, 400 years or, or, or 2,000 years prior to or 4,000 years. No, no. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Both his humanity, he's Jesus of Nazareth, geographical, and he, his deity, the Holy One of God. Crazy. He represents, this demon represents all darkness, the plural we. This demon recognizes his humanity, he's Jesus of Nazareth. This demon is frightened. At his unveiled holiness, he's the Holy One of God. He's frightful of his, frightened by his presence. Why? Because evil spirits love darkness rather than light. Light has walked into the synagogue, right? The light of Jesus' teaching um, has so pierced this demon that he cannot be quiet. And then the demon recognizes his supreme deity, the Holy One of God. So what is Jesus going to do? Well, let's just pause a second. I'll tell you if that happened today, what they would do. They would get a stadium and a white suit and slick your hair back. And they'd hold the big events. It's called the prosperity gospel. And they would go with big publicity. And they'd look for big moments. They'd get on Twitter, right? They'd use all the social media. And they would draw huge crowds so you could come and see. I'm telling you, look what Jesus did. And this should be a constant reminder. When you see that kind of shenanigan going on, you see people trying to fleece people for money. You see people trying to exploit people for their own gain. You know where it's coming from. It's straight out of the pit of hell. Look how Jesus handles this moment. This moment of fame, look what he says. Jesus rebuked him and said, shut up and come out of him. He locked him down. He said, don't say a word. Don't say a word. Shut up and come out of him. Be, literally it means be muzzled. Quiet. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that he needed to buy some time to train his disciples and his apostles, which later in Mark he'll call them apostles. Right now they're disciples, the four that are in tow with him. He needed time with them. If the word got out, he would become so popular that 
he would not be able to spend any time, any one-on-one or meaningful time, we'd call it. Secondarily, he didn't want it to be spectacular faith. He didn't want it to be, wow, we saw a demon on the Sabbath, and everybody leaves there, and the guy's head spun around. He's, you know, spit out grape juice and crazy. It was bizarre. And, 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 and so that's why I trust him, because I saw it with my own eyes. This guy's head spun around three times. That's just why I'm trusting Jesus. He didn't want it to be a spectacular faith, but ordinary. And third, he doesn't want it to be a satanic testimony. He doesn't want the demons to giving testimony of a true gospel. So you have falsehood and darkness testifying of truth. It is so backwards. And I would say fourth, contra to false teachers today and that were true in that day, they will seek popularity. Watch out when some person gets up and tries to seek popularity over gospel truth. Just like today, they're fame seekers and not truth seekers. And so he quiets the crowd. He quiets the moment. He tells in a counter-cultural way, that demon to just stop talking. Well, demons rarely go quiet. <laughs> They're not going to go easy. Uh, this is not going to be, this is an awkward moment. Picture yourself in this synagogue. So picture a synagogue's typically extremely quiet. Rabbi gets up, reads a little scripture, binds your family, wears you out. You go home and eat chicken. It's just horrible, Right? So this is a weird morning. Jesus speaks. The very son of God walks into your synagogue. He speaks. It's mind-boggling. And right behind it comes this demonic explosion in the service. This guy stands up. He screams out. It's craziness, right? And he said, be quiet and come out of him. And he heals the man of his demon spirit. Look at this demon. He's not going to go out easy. Look at verse 26. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. It wasn't going to go away easy. Can you imagine how quiet it is and this is all happening? You'd be stunned if a dude stands up here in this church. Head spins around three times. I go, hey, come on out. And then he screams, kicks a little bit. And I mean, that would just be awesome. Like, it would be crazy, right? It was blood curdling. It was a death roar. And then he departed. Christ binding the strong man once again. Since Genesis 3, he puts his foot on the serpent's head and says, shut up and get out. True authority and true power. You know, not the stuff you see today, folks. You've got to be discerning. I'm just trying to remind you of being discerning. This is not the gift of healing when one arm's longer than the other and you do this. Okay, see what I just did? Look at that, healing. No, it's not what's going on. Raising from the dead, that's healing. Casting out a demon, that's healing. But there's no crowd. There's no popularity contest with Jesus. He says, quiet it down. I don't want any of the shenanigans. What do we need to learn from this demonic moment? There's some things you need to know. First, we don't want to overestimate and give too much credit to darkness. So we don't overestimate what happens here. It's still under the authority of Christ, still under the power of Christ. We're called to push back the same darkness. We don't want to overestimate it to where we see a demon and everything. So you break down on the side of the road. There's not a demon of flat tires. Okay? You just got a flat tire. You live in a Genesis 3 world. There's thorns and thistles. You know, deer are going to cross the road. You're going to smash them. Uh, raccoons are going to go through your windshield. Uh, things just happen. That's called living in a Genesis 3 world. That's not demonic activity. Most likely, you probably never encountered demonic activity. You will clearly know when it happens. There will be no, I wonder if that was a demon. You see what I'm saying? It just doesn't work that way. Don't overestimate him, though. And the second thing is don't underestimate him. Don't underestimate him either. Don't overdo it and don't underdo it because it's real. Now, why is it so concentrated here? Because the Son of God was on the planet. That's why it was so concentrated. You, you don't see it. It's all over the world. It's happening. There's persecution going on. It's happening all over the world still. But the Son of God's not on the earth. So there wasn't this kind of concentrated area in called Galilee and Capernaum, these small 
cool towns along the sea that, that just kind of drew all the attention because the Son of God stood up and teach for the, taught for the first time. That's why it's so different. So when someone has a ministry to this and it's all over the place and it happens all the time, you kind of get a little suspicious. You should be. But don't underestimate them, right? There is a foul presence. presence. There is darkness. There's darkness all around you. And you need to be keenly aware of that. So we don't want you to be naive, but we don't want you to be over-torqued or, or, or over-concerned as well. I think sometimes what we do is we label modern medical maladies and we say that's demonic activity. Like Tourette's, for example, right? You will know when you experience darkness, real darkness. It will be unmistakable. Another thing we need to take away from this text, very important. We must recognize that as a church plant in Bardstown, we will be contested by darkness. Us on the individual basis. Individually, you'll be tested. Your family will be tested. Your kids will be tested. What you're doing is we're planting a stake in the ground, and we're trying to reach people with the gospel. I can assure you that gets the devil's attention. So the more we pick up pace, which we need to, the more we pick up steam and pace, the more darkness will come. Still true today, but we stand with authority and in the power of Christ and the power of the gospel. We withstand the darkness. We are salt and light. We push back on the darkness. We are Bardstown's conscience. We are light to a dark city, right? We're light to a dark city. That's what we do. It will draw attention. Lastly, about this text, this, this text gives me hope, a lot of hope. Because if Jesus can create such awe and expects us as teachers to create the same kind of awe because we teach the very same scriptures, and second, that, that we ought to provide hope that this demon-possessed man could be saved and changed, then anybody in Bardstown can be saved and changed. That crazy neighbor of yours that keeps moving the fence line every five inches every or keeps mowing your grass further and further in your land you ever have one of those They're, they can get saved too you know and 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 the crazy people you're seeing on the road they'll get saved you know you got to trust that, that this if god can save this old boy if jesus can save this old boy, he can save any of us and we're all testimonies of his grace you're a testimony of his grace i'm a testimony of his grace i promise you um it god can change our kids hearts he can change our neighbors' hearts. He can change our coworkers' hearts. And I'm telling you, the darker it is and the harder they are, the easier they fall. Push them. It's pushback time. Pushback. Let's wrap it. Verse 27. Look at their response. They were all amazed. So they debated among themselves. They're like, what has happened? What is this? A new teaching with authority? That's our calling. We speak with authority. And he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They're coming to the conclusion that the guy standing in front of them is the very son of God, right? I mean, can you imagine the four disciples that are with Jesus? That had to be a lasting impression. This is the first time there's healing. They're in a synagogue. And they're seeing all this go down and they're thinking, my goodness, we have joined the right team, right? So what's happening is they're, they're literally dazed in verse 27. They're, they're bedazzled. They're, they're, they're both surprised and terrified. They kind of don't know what to do. They're a little bit paralyzed, to be honest. They're like, I don't know. I, I kind of, I, what just happened? They rightly concluded it was his divine authority that he was unique. And that same authority accompanies the gospel you preach and the gospel we believe in. In verse 28, immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding districts of Galilee. Folks, light trumps darkness. You are to speak with authority and you are called to push back darkness if you're a member of this church. It's what I do. It's what you do. It's what we all do, right? We push back on the malevolent, foul darkness in Bardstown that destroys people's lives. We speak with authority. We need as a group to go berserk. Either we're all in, in church planting, right? Or we're not. 
We need to go berserk. We need to pray for encounters. We need to pray. Are you getting up tomorrow morning and saying, God, give me someone to talk to? Put a neighbor out there. It's fall. They're going to hang their clothes out because it's fall. You haven't seen them for three months because they've been in the air conditioning. They're coming out. Pray for them. And then go talk to them. Take a step towards them. Right? Be bold. Push back the darkness by proclaiming Christ. The one who's sent by God in forgiveness of sin. I've told you this before, but on an airplane, you know, I, I just, I'll sometimes just offer it up. Hey, do you, do you want to know how you can be forgiven of all your sins? Yeah. That's, how you, that's as easy as it is to talk to people. Just go to your neighbor and say, hey, you've got a beautiful garden. You want to know how you can be forgiven for your sins? Just go for it. Just be bold. This is what Christ did. He walks in the cigar, bang. Speak with authority and push back darkness. That's what we do. And that's why we're here as a church plant. That's why we are united as a church plant. This is what we're about. We call people to repent, believe, follow, fish. And clearly in this passage, it is an admonition to us as a local church to practice speaking with authority and pushing back darkness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time in the scriptures. Um, it's good to study a, a biography about Christ and watching his movements, where he shows up, where he goes to, what he does and how he does it. It's, it's so instructive and so helpful. I pray as a church that you would help us to speak with authority and boldness, to not be authoritarian, but to speak with boldness and clarity and authority. Lord, we do that with good content, with clarity of message, the truth of Scripture. We would back it up with our lives and that there would be a sense of urgency about us that we would, as Aristotle figured out, we would put that package together and that we would be winsome in reaching our community for Christ. So, Lord, help us to speak with authority. Help us to push back darkness, to, to even be aware that we're making a difference and that we are... Um, feeling the darkness and we're feeling the pressure Lord this account of this single Sabbath day had to blow everyone's mind and I pray that this church would have that kind of flavor to it um, that when people come in um, they would be uh, dazzled and have awe because of the study of scripture but it would point them to you Lord and they would come face to face with you and then they would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, give us um, these, the necessary aid to implement these into our lives. Help us to be bold this week for the sake of the gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.